Greetings, everyone. Tis I, your bruising dwarf, Holden McNeely. And tis I, your wayfish immortal elf queen of the forest, Jake. Here, have a gem. It means something. Not gonna tell ya. Not gonna tell ya. It'll matter later. Do you do bumble? <laughs> I am beyond mortal genitals. <laughs> I just stand in a waterfall. I can work with that. I mean, I'm willing to do... She gave me three. <laughs> Genitals, that is. Listen, everybody. We are back on the attack with Lord of the Rings Part 2. I'm so excited about this because I got to enjoy living in the realm of Lord of the Rings uh, all week this week. And also, um, it, it's just... I've learned so much about... So many things that I never thought to question or never... Uh, uh, or never got around to researching. I mean, that's kind of what this podcast can be all about at times, right? Just getting to finally get around to like answering these questions about the deeper meanings behind the work, uh, the um, the the making of the work, the the approach of J.R. Tolkien. Also, really was curious and really. It was great to learn more about Christopher Tolkien, his son, and, and his son's preservation of his father's legacy, because that story could go either way as well, and we'll get into that, of course, but I think that I like Christopher Tolkien a lot more rather than the weird kind of distant opinion I had of him, which was potentially just some guy who yeah. had nothing better to do than make money off of his dad's estate, but that's not the case at all. Like, he helped him write Lord of the Rings. There wouldn't be, like, as we understand, the Lord of the Rings phenomenon would not exist without him. So, um, oh. before we even get into this, though, I have to say this episode is sponsored by Andrew Weston. Andrew Weston, thank you so much for your patronage, and he wants to give a shout-out for his girlfriend's birthday slash anniversary Brenna you wise ass son of a bitch this is by the way from An uh, Andrew not from me okay <laughs> I was I gonna say you are being that. very informal Brenna you wise ass son of a bitch are the best thing that could have happened to me from creeping it real to our nerdy nights out it's been three amazing years and I can't wait to spend 57 more with you 60 seems like a nice round number I love you all through the end times Aww. how sweet is I love it I love these anniversary uh, Patreon ones. They're so sweet. I want to do something. You know that what? Nice in honor Lexi. of them, I will sing a tale of two lovers who are united in the undying lands and, and the original Sindarin. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> You're making this up. You are. He is making this up. <laughs> ah, what is? Why do you have to? He's literally sing grabbing his own throat. And shaking it to make that noise. It's the same as the SpongeBob laugh. <laughs> uh, by the way, uh, rest in peace. Uh, yeah, the Stephen Hillenberg. Stephen Hillenberg, yes. Uh, but anyways, let's get into it. I, I want to say with this, usually I feel like you and I really search to find like a hook or like kind of a basic thesis to an episode that we do. And we always kind of talk about it maybe a little before, maybe we end on it a little bit after. For me personally, I feel like this is essentially what Lord of the Rings is, which is the sum of its many, many parts. And this week, last week, we talked about a lot of influences that Tolkien had. We talked about his childhood. We talked about The Hobbit. And we kind of got all the way up to the actual books, The Lord of the Rings. And um, this week, it's going to be... 
a lot of many different things. It's going to be talking about his relationship with religion and that that relationship invading Lord of the Rings. I want to talk about his hatred of allegory. <laughs> I want to talk about uh, Christopher Tolkien, of course. I want to talk about things just within these books that people are beloved by people. And I'm going to tell you what, chat. I'm incredibly chat. I'm still on a Twitch stream. You're on right a now. twitchy kind of. Set. You're in a twitchy kind of mood. I'm. I'm going to tell you what. This right shit's now, shit's pre-recorded. Ain't I'm, nothing being streamed. Don't make me fart in this microphone right now. <laughs> is all I'm going to say to you right now, Jake. It's because that's what I apparently I do in my Twitch streams in the made up world that I'm creating right now. Because we're going to talk about world building, Jake. Mm. And we're going to talk about maybe not some things that you want us to talk about. I don't want you to be mad at me, okay, for leaving anything out. Because I want you to have sympathy for me that this is a massive undertaking. And at the end of the day, like, I can't even begin to fully wrap my head around everything that is the Lord of the Rings and the legacy of J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm going to say this as well, though. I am so happy we finally got around to doing these episodes. It feels right. It just feels good for the show. I feel like it's just going to make me feel so much better when people look at our backlog and see we did a two-parter on J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. That's not even counting the movies, which, by the way, there's going to be like a 20-part episode. It's just going to be, yeah, the, 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 you know, God's plan. This podcast still goes to 2021. It's just going to be the year of the the Lord of the Rings movies. And it's literally going to be me as if I was Chris Farley on the Chris Farley show. Mm -hmm. Just be like, Remember that part? Yeah. It's pretty su- sweet, Dude, he right? stabbed a thing with an arrow and then shot the arrow at another guy. I mean, unfortunately, I was unable to reread the books uh, leading up to this, but I was able to dust off my extended Lord of the Rings DVD set, which would probably make Jared Tolkien vomit, by the way, that I, I watched that in preparation for, for this episode. But I have to say, it's so fucking good. I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. So I just like, it's just my comfort food, that oh that extended DVD set. Holden, I am so happy to see you full of exuberant magical energy because <laughs> I had some personal shit this week. Uh, this was tough. This was a Jake. tough, tough week. And like in the stolen moments, in the quiet, like just like hours that I could finally crack at this research, I would, it would be, a, it was a nightmare. I would yeah. just be like, all right origins of lord of the rings would be like well clearly the uh viar and the myar and again the idris and the bilbaps i'm like no 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 no. i'm sorry um story of the lord of the rings okay well melkor in the first day like no 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 shit it was imp- this there's just too much of it besides taking the 12 part book series that christopher tolkien wrote which breaks down all of tolkien's process around his development of the history of middle earth and I, again i'm sorry i didn't have time to read that uh, besides Shh, that, don't give it away. It's very hard to <laughs> find. Like you did. It's very hard to find real strong documentation. There's no oral history of the making of Lord of the Rings, right? Like, there, it's really hard to no, find. There is for the fucking movies. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh yeah, there's so much to be found for the movies. Um, but uh, yeah, this was a bit of a challenge. But you know what? It forced me to really dig in new ways and and dig up some really fascinating shit and make some really interesting connections for myself and say to and ask myself truly ask myself what is it about this that I love that 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 turns me on and what is it about this that makes it so damn special and so such a bedrock of fantasy writing and and also just entertainment in general at this point you know and and I love that you know. It, it, it's gone through many different life cycles of popularity, too. And, uh, you know, it had its own craze in America with college kids in, like, the mid-60s. And that was a whole thing. Like, hippies and stuff got really into it. It had its whole resurgence because of the movies and everything, you know? I mean, it's 
it is really um, just such a massive, beautiful world that is so incredibly diligently built that that continued to be built and developed until his final, final days. And that is also fascinating. This is a world that he was not, like the Cimmerillion was not fully finished, and he was continuing to revise and add to and change his world all throughout his entire life. And it makes me jealous I don't have a world like that in my life yet. You know what I mean? You know, the Silmarils were these uh, gemstones that were made of the concentrated essence of the two trees, the gold tree and the silver Is that tree, real? that built the world. And uh, they sat upon the crown of Melkor. This is the shit I had to scroll through <laughs> just to get some juicy bits, and it broke me, Holden. Let's get into it. So, Tolkien has written The Hobbit, right? Now, Tolkien has written The Hobbit, and after The Hobbit is published, he says this. I now wanted to try my hand at writing a really stupendously long narrative and to see whether I had sufficient art, cunning, or material to make a really long narrative which would hold the average reader right through. One of the best forms of the long narrative is, as was found in The Hobbit, of the pilgrimage or journey with an object. So that was inevitably the form that I adopted. So he's got the books, he's working on them. They're originally intended to be a single volume work divided into six sections with appendices. The publisher comes back. They say it should be split into three separate parts with the appendices in the final book, potentially due to paper shortages, actually, due to post-World War II. Also, uh, their idea, uh, it was their idea, by the way, which I always wondered this. It was their idea to name it Return of the King. And Tolkien was like, isn't that giving the whole fucking ending away? (laughs) Which I thought that initially when I first read the books. Like, why are they just like telling us everything works out? In the final book but with the name of it. But anyways, he originally wanted it to be The War of the Ring and The End of the Third Age. That's the final two books. And they were titled that in the like Millennium release. They, they, they made sure to let us know what the original intended titles were. Also... Fellowship of the Rings, broken up into two parts. Uh, the Ring sets out, and the Ring goes south. And um, then you've got the Two Towers, and the Two Towers, uh, as Tolkien said, the Two Towers gets as near as possible to finding a title to cover the widely divergent books three and four, and can be left ambiguous. So those are broken up into the, his original two names were oh, yeah. The Treason of Isengard, and then The Journey of the Ring Bearers, or The Ring Goes East. That is book three and four. I know you I forget did that. that the volumes are two books each. Technically. Yes. And, and one thing you don't realize if you're just, a, a you know, movie you don't realize watcher. it because the movies intercut it yeah. and make it a more united story. You forget like when you, and we talked about this last week, but you forget that, Oh, I'm just, I'm with Sam and Frodo for half this book, you know, <laughs> and we're not leaving their side for half the book and we're not going to see them again until the next book. That's pretty wild. And so cliffhangers would hang uh, hard. Uh, when you were reading these books. I couldn't imagine reading them as they were coming out, how exciting and amazing that would be. So let's talk about Usually, the ring. Usually Frodo would get stabbed. Yes. Frodo got stabbed and then we got to- He gets stabbed, he's almost dead, and everybody's like, where is everybody? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And Saruman's like, oh, I'm probably gonna not win, but I'm <laughs> bad. And Grimma Wormtongue's like, do you, does anybody think, I don't, I don't, do you think I should have chosen a better name? <laughs> They're uh, plotting against you. <laughs> I'm going to say I love Wormtongue in the movies, and I love his him as a character, and I just always imagine how furiously he must beat off to Eowyn. <laughs> um, so, anyways, let's discuss the One Ring. One Ring to rule them all, One Ring to find them, One Ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them. I fucking love the ring and what it is and how it is this 
it's like this magical symbol, and at the same time, it ha- it had it's a character in in the work, um, and yet it does not speak, but it just has this, and it's never like overtly um, doing a thing necessarily. It's always like it's just drawing people in, it's enticing them in, you know. Other than changing size, mm-hmm. it's not like a laser fucking shoots out of it. You know what I mean? It's one powers, quote unquote, like it's one readily apparent power is it makes you incredibly visible to the uh to, to the to the ring rates. Yes. It just wants to be found. Um it's kind of like uh and and it's kind of like how JoJo has the stands mm-hmm. to represent mental powers. So they had to create find a way to physicalize it. But that's kind of what the I ring is. I can't believe you found a way to tie Fuck fucking yeah, JoJo's dude. bizarre adventure to Yeah, lines. dude. Tolkien said, "I should say that it was a mythical way of representing the truth." that potency or perhaps potentiality if it is to be exercised and produce results has to be externalized and so as it were passes to a greater or lesser degree out of one's direct control now it is often looked at as a metaphor for nuclear power based on the notion of a power too great for humans to safely possess and you're going to hear Tolkien over and over again reject the idea that his work is an allegory for World War II or even one that uh, he does not like allegory and I will explain that later on but, but I will here's, here's the reason reason why is because up until this point um this is really the first like big holy shit in the lord of the rings i uh the one thing that i really was uh captivated by when doing research was i found the original new york times book reviews yes. for each of the volumes i'm and so curious about this from joke. 1954 this is wh Onan and is he's trying to like get people to understand what these books even are because the fantasy novel hasn't been popularized yet And so uh, this is the quote. Now, normally all quests are concerned with some numinous object, the waters of life, the Holy Grail, a buried treasure. And it's a good object, which is the hero's task to find or rescue from an enemy. But the ring of Mr. Tolkien's story was made by the enemy and is so dangerous that even the good cannot use it without being corrupted, which is a fucking brilliant twist on like one of the most ancient stories of all time, which is what if the treasure was the treasure itself is trying to fuck you? Right. That's insane. That's brilliant. I love That's it. So good. Um, on Tolkien uh, uh, rejecting the idea about the nuclear power, he said that uh, if that had been his intention this entire time, the book would not have ended with the ring being destroyed, but rather with an arms race in which various powers would try to obtain such a ring for themselves, creating a bleak world in which such creatures as the hobbits would be trampled underfoot and have little hope of survival. And I just wanted to include that quote because um, uh, it's hilarious that he, he uh, his worldview is very dark, yeah. is what I'm trying to say. And, um, He's that a is- conservative. He thinks all people are animals. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, a, a, a Tory, a right proper Tory. And of course, people have made connections between the ring being a metaphor uh, for drug addiction, the obsessions with it, the physical and spiritual after effects of being around, the of, of wielding the ring. Uh, again, of course, this he denies. And another thing he denies, by the way, a lot of this is Tolkien denying shit that other people think about him. A lot of this research. Many believe Tolkien based his one ring off of Der Ring des Nibelungen. Do you know Wagner. what this Yes, this is Wagner. It translates to the Ring of Nibelung, uh, which is also referred to as the Ring Cycle. This is a pretty intense work I had never heard of. The, what? No. I had never heard of this. It's it's literally when you think of a fat lady with the horns in opera. That's that's the, the Ring Cycle. That's, that's the one? That's, yeah, yeah. It's a cycle of four German languages. Kill the wabbit. Kill the wabbit. Is that based on the yeah, Ring Cycle? Yeah, no, no, no. That's a Flight oh, of the Valkyries. Really? It's all, oh, all, it all gotcha. comes together. Flight of the Valkyries is out of Ring Cycle? Yeah. I didn't even know that. Oh, you dumb dumb. I am 
I'm a dumb, me so dumb dumb me poop my pants now? I only know any of this because I listened to fucking pretentious NPR podcast <laughs> and my uh, fiance was a trained opera <laughs> I'm sure people are screaming at their uh, iPhones right now. Um, <laughs> cycle. Of, it is a cycle of four German language epic music dramas composed by Richard Wagner. And it's based on characters from Norse sagas written by Wagner over uh, 26 years. It is performed over four nights at the opera with a runtime of 15 hours. And it's an epic story involving gods, heroes, and a mythical creature, uh, a mythical creatures rather, with three generations of protagonists all centered around a magic ring that grants dominion over the world. Tolkien says uh, about this work, and his work, uh, both rings were round, and there the resemblance ceases. And he apparently actually felt that Wagner's uh, interpretation of Germanic myths to be poor. Uh, but I will say this. He definitely clearly took a lot from Norse mythology. I think the argument he makes is like, hey, our source material was the same. Yeah, the Eddas. But, uh, but past that, I was not influenced by this work. Um, but at the same time, I thought that was kind of interesting. Now, um, how did he write this work? Uh, I, I I wanted to try to find as much as I could possibly fucking dig into to talk about like how he approached writing, what he you know, and and I did find some. From juicy what I understand, bits. he just never stopped drawing weird maps on the sides of like catalogs. He and always placements. Started, he always started with a map, and um, I'm actually working on a little project I can't talk about right now but um my first thing i'm going to do it is it is going to it is sort of fantasy based and the first thing i'm going to do is is draw a map mm-hmm. uh luckily i know like the shape the map needs to be anyways based on what it's about but um it's just a map of florida upside down exactly and it's called dick smuth <laughs> um no but he he so a couple things about him he had severe rheumatism uh which is essentially like arthritis right yeah. um inflammation and pain in the joints muscles and fibrous tissue and therefore he used a typewriter for the most part he did write a ton of shit uh by hand still even with the issue but he always said my hand tends to start fair and rapidly fall into picturesque inscrutability um and his favorite typewriter uh, was the 1927 American Hammond Variotype. And one of the cool things about it is it had a removable panel that he could customize so that he could write in italics and he could add little accents and stuff for his like elvish language and everything. Mm-hmm. So it just gave him a little bit more diversity and the way the script looked. So even the manuscript was like otherworldly. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, and though it did pain him, he did write many detailed notes about Middle Earth with a pen. Um, and he wrote the manuscript for Lord of the Rings twice, actually. He wrote it uh, twice in uh, on his bed in his attic. And on his bed in his attic was his favorite spot to write. Uh, and, and here also we will talk about how he formed the world and, and uh, his approach to world ba- building. And a lot of it, of course, as you might have guessed, started not with just a map, but also with uh, with languages and having languages dictate the world. That sneaky philologist. I like saying the word philologist. He, he said Very funny he say. said this about I love the word philologist. We, that's how you and I met. <laughs> I was like I was at a bar and I ordered a drink and they kind of they gave it to me kind of slight. And I was like, stop being such a fucking philologist. <laughs> and then Jake was like, that's my favorite word. And I was like, do you like Pokemon? He was like, fuck, yeah, I like Pokemon. Hey, do you want to get some falafel and talk about philology? <laughs> And a friendship was born. And when friendship was born, then we went to that frog licking festival, and then, you know, <laughs> we got naked together. It was a whole thing. Uh, Jared Tolkien says this about using languages to lead world building. <laughs> 
Uh, anyone who invents a language finds that it requires a suitable habitation and a history in which it can develop. A real language is never invented, of course. It is a natural thing. It is wrong to call the language you grow up speaking your native language. It is not. It is your first learnt language. It is a byproduct of the total makeup of the animal. Um, and uh, this he has to say about uh, language building as a child. As a child, I was always inventing languages, but that was naughty. I love this idea that, like, he this was his bad boy thing he did. Uh, poor boys must concentrate on getting scholarships. When I was supposed to be studying Latin and Greek, I studied Welsh and English at to, to <laughs> rebel. That's <laughs> so funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I was supposed to be concentrating. Oi, on- James, you better be learning fucking Latin up there. Oi, oi, tis, mother. Tis, I, I'm learning Latin. <laughs> that dumb bitty. <laughs> she don't know I'm learning Welsh. <laughs> when I was supposed to be concentrating on English, I took up Finnish. I have always been incapable of doing the job in hand, but I think that is a great uh, quote that relates back to when he was supposed to be grading papers. Mm-hmm. And instead, he sort of had a rebellious moment there where he was like, I don't want to grade these fucking papers in a whole lived a hobbit. Yeah. You know, and, and just his whole work took off from there. Um, and uh, he also really uh, felt strongly about um, f- how fairy tales are approached and about commitment to them and about making them believable. Of this, he says, believable fairy tales must be intensely practical. You must have a map no matter how rough. Otherwise, you wander all over the place. In The Lord of the Rings, I never made anyone go farther than he could on a given day. I loved that. Ooh. I love that he thought very specifically like, how much could they ground could they actually travel um, and all of that good stuff. Unless he wrote himself into a corner and then he begrudgingly invoked the eagles. Yes, and of course... You have a 127-page appendix uh, after the end of Return of the King uh, of extensive notes. And that's not even counting the Cimmerillion and all that other stuff. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just an unbelievable amount of fucking world building. Uh, but at the same time, he also just kind of went with it and just sort of went with impulse. And I believe in that strongly. I believe writing on impulse is very important. To me, it makes me sad when I see people writing sketch comedy and, and watching them like analyze every step of the sketch and then like write it very scientifically. It makes me sad. Like I, I oh, when you're like, aha, and then we introduce the third uh, game, the heightening, heightening. Of, to the game, and this is where we'll do that. And I, I believe in that talk. I'm not going to say you shouldn't analyze your material and revise your material in that way it's called structure not a prison man. yeah it's not a fucking prison and you should just really go with it and really just try to write on impulse and try to surprise yourself it's so important like i don't want to read your boring ass traditional what you learned in school sketch it's fucking boring i want to see something where you're like this is a risk and I'm like, yeah, it is. Let's try to unpack. Let's try to figure out how we can fit it more into something that's more palatable for audiences. But I'd way rather read that kind of material. Anyways, he says of this, I got sucked into it as The Hobbit did itself. As you know, The Hobbit was originally about these dwarves. And as soon as he got it, uh, got moving out into the world, he got moving and slipped into it. I had maps, of course. If you're going to have a complicated story, you must work to a map. Otherwise, you can never make a map of it afterwards. I also love that thought. Yeah, like trying to do it in hindsight after you've written the thing i mean you'd never you know trying to like put all these land masses together how you wrote 
these people journeying through it, it would probably be like empire. It'd have to be like chaos geometry, like fucking Lovecraftian or some shit. Another important thing, which is interesting to me, but it makes a lot of sense, is names was another important thing to him. Uh, it gives me great pleasure, a good name. I always, in writing, start with a name, give me a name, and it produces a story, not the other way around, about normally. So start I- with a name. I mean, the, he literally had to, he. I honest to God believe that Mary and Pippin were just like created so that he could have more hobbits around that the characters can explain shit to. Right, right. That's honestly one of the things. Again, one of the big amazing magic tricks or the bold things they did was people would put down these books, and it was the first time that they were like, "Whoa, why do I know? Like, why does this fake world seem so real to me?" And not in the way that like a uh, Wizard of Oz or a, uh, a Never Neverland would, uh, but in the way that people walk away is like I know history and lineages and geography and like how many days ride it takes to get from Andor to Rohan. Right. Like that's insane. Right. Not that they ever went to Andor. Whatever. Shut up. <laughs> but it's so true. And he was incredibly descriptive. And he was incredibly. Uh, uh, and to, to almost to a fault, some would think. And not in the some way that say. like a Lewis Carroll would just kind of like throw out like, and then the Bimblebrook went over to the Fiffle Faffle. Like, no, Don't he, call was- my fiance a Bimblebrook, <laughs> you fuck. I'll jump over this podcast desk in this filthy room that we do it in. And- you want to go snicker snack, my bro? Uh, I think. <laughs> I'm, I'm a fucking jabberwocky <laughs> of a man. You I think just- that's Star Wars at this point. I think you've it's fallen all- into Star Wars. So, it's the difference between good fantasy and bad fantasy. Is like you know, Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. <laughs> Lord, Star Wars was using like the t- the the Star Wars became Lord of the Rings after the fact is what I'm trying to say. It yes. took a lot of like collective effort to make the Star Wars universe as real as Tolkien on his own made uh, Middle Earth. Yes. Um. So now I would like to talk about his uh, brief experience with World War II. And I have some great uh, little bits about his hatred of when people try to say that his work is allegory, um, as well as his actual political views, which do fall in line. At the end of the day, he is a guy that loves nature and has a bit of a problem with certain types of progress mm-hmm. in certain ways. Some types of pro- I think he does make the argument in his work that some types of progress are bad, like in an industrial sense. I don't think he's necessarily saying any specific industrialization or like the industrialization in World War II. I think he's trying to step back as far as possible because what you have to realize is he was obsessed with myth and with legend and with all uh, with with uh, all these stories that have withstood the test of time like we talked about with Beowulf and everything. So what he's trying to do with Lord of the Rings is create his own mythology that is something that people can interpret and pick apart throughout time, but never say, oh, he's just talking about World War II. You know what I mean? No, it's just a matter of a survivalist and uh, some small-town farmers going on a mission where they every single urban setting they encounter is rife with ruin, corruption, and uh, short-sighted uh, fools. But it's one of those where it's like 300 years from now, 500 years now. And the East is full of just uh, clattering uh, amorphous beast people that just need to be fucking beat down. So, so yeah, exactly. And so it's like 500 years from now, 1,000 years from now, he wants people saying like, you know, Officer Gleek Glock, he reminds me of Sauron. You know what I mean? Without yeah. any kind of, and it'd be palatable and referential anytime. 
uh, and that's what he was trying to create. That's the world he wanted to create. So, okay, he does have a small role to play in World War II. His son actually has a bit more of a role to play, but we'll get to Christopher in a little bit. He took an instructional course at the London HQ of the Government Code and Cipher School to potentially be a code breaker. Makes, makes sense. Makes sense, right, with his love of many different languages and symbols and all that kind of stuff. That would make a lot of sense. Um, he was actually, though, informed eventually that uh, his services would not be required. He didn't have a big role in World War II, in other words. He was definitely uh, vocally opposed to Hitler, even before World War II, uh, and was always very protective of... Um, he had many Jewish friends. He was very protective of the, uh, you know his friends and uh, had a big hatred for Nazi doctrine. I mean, I mean, I think that's why he lovingly wrote the dwarves in his, in his, in Lord of the Rings at, uh, were clearly Jewish. Like he even has a quote. I don't think I pulled no, it. But uh, it was just diaspora like, lost culture yeah. yearning to return to a homeland. Comically greedy. Of course, a loving interpretation. <laughs> Constantly farting. All right. Look, I don't know. Okay. I'm just a fucking, I'm fucking white McWhitesonson's. Over in my corner of the rim, all right? I, I've, I have no idea what's going on with what you're talking about. He, he tried. An attempt was made. <laughs> and, of course, he was definitely horrified by the atomic bombings in Hiroshima. He criticized the use of total war tactics against civilians in Germany and Japan during World War II as well, though. So he was definitely critical on the other end as well. Um, and, yeah, and, and uh, also, too, just as a side note, he... Uh, he was definitely against communist Republicans and Stalin. Once he learned that they were destroying churches and killing priests and nuns, um, that's uh, he referred to Stalin as that bloodthirsty old murderer. So it doesn't it makes sense that people would think that. But as he has said, uh, the book is not about anything but itself. It has no allegorical intentions, topical, moral, religious, or political. It is not about modern wars or H bombs. And my villain is not Hitler. Um, he even remarks, like, and this is essentially saying, like, if you were to say anything, um, I suppose it was more like an allegory of the human race. I've always been impressed that we're uh, here surviving because of the indomitable courage of quite small people against impossible odds. Jungles, volcanoes, wild beasts, they struggle on almost blindly in a way. Um, but of allegory, he says this, and I think this is makes a lot of sense. I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations and always have done so since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but the one resides in the freedom of the reader and the other in the proposed domination of the author. So in other words, what he's saying is, he never wants to force the reader down a specific lane. He never wants to he never wants the reader to go, "Oh, I read and the teacher told me this is an allegory for World War II and never even attempt to create their own interpretation of the work." What he wants is for his own work to be interpreted and and for people to find their own meaning. And such is art. Like yeah. Such is art. Like my, I would say my favorite kind of art is definitely that which really is just raw, complete. You know, you can learn about maybe where the artist was when they painted it, or maybe I would even say like a, a Pollock. Right? So there's something about Pollocks that I really love, and I think it's because it's just it's chaos, and at the same time you can find so many things in it that are so personal to you. If you're looking for that kind of takeaway, you can you can just try to like let it wash over you. 
And I never feel like he's necessarily being like, I'm making a statement about the the war with this one. You I, know what I mean? I mean, he definitely lays out a version of morality and a version of, like, yes. idea of, an, an, you know, the and Shire as this idyllic place. Yes. The, uh, the, the way that uh, they kind of showcase, like, Gondor and the political stuff that happens. Like, the, you can find... Oh, sure. Like, and we're about to get into yeah. the religion, by the way. And that's where you get the most, like, messaging in his work. Besides the sort of nature's awesome, buildings, so, like, you know, smoke and fire kind of sucks. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that kind of stuff. Progress kind of sucks. Giant towers instead of, you know, beautiful forests. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, I mean the, the 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 books themselves. It's about the death of magic. Yeah, that in order to like stop evil magic, like chaos, you also have to destroy mystery and whimsy and all mm, that shit. Interesting. I love that. I, I mean, thought of it like that. Well, the elves have to bail because the yes. rings kept him in the world. It's all yes. I, and again, this you're right. It is a little bit of a Pollock thing, but whatever. It is. It, it's definitely. It leads you a little bit more than maybe that kind of blank blank slate but he dev like i said he wants it to be applied to the world not this a is b c is d also it'd be pretty cool if a guy um uh, like a badass ranger wielded the sword that was broken in shimmering light as he led a ghost army to take out an entire band of uh pirates and marauders um, That'd be pretty cool. That would be pretty cool. That's a good message. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I will now. Let's talk a little bit about this religious stuff. And I will also, s- if a wizard fought a devil on a bridge and it dragged him to the deepest part of hell, and then the gods yes. themselves willed the wizard back to life <gasps> as a bold angel of light. God, I want to say fly you fools, but I don't know if that's in the. That's in the book. Okay, that's good because I'm so scared. I'm going to quote the movie by accident. You know what I mean? Because I don't want to quote the movie because I feel like that's so insulting too. They didn't really, they did not ever want it to be made into a film, um, by the way. And, you know. And Ralph Bakshi was like, nah, I'm going to do it. Tolkien said, you can't cramp, cramp narrative into dramatic form. It would be easier to film the Odyssey. Much less happens in it. Only a few storms is what he said of making it into a film. He was very anti. He was a, he was a bit of a codger. You know what I mean? Hi everybody, it's your stock market wizard here and I want to talk to you about the Robinhood app. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy, by presenting a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. That's because the app is simple and intuitive, utilizing a clear design with data presented in an easy-to-digest way. I'm such a visual learner myself, and I just love how clear and helpful their graphics are in showing me my options and leading me to the investments I want to make. It's like Tinder, but replace horny people with sound investments. You can also discover new stocks and track favorite companies with a personalized news feed, as well as custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. And check this out. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. You can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. But that's not all. I've always wanted to say that. Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at wizard.robinhood.com. That is, again, wizard.robinhood.com today. But what I do, I will say this. Um, I I really love his relationship with religion, especially in the books. 
And um, I want to explain why. I feel like a lot of times religion isn't necessarily looked at super kind, fondly, maybe in, um, I don't know, like whatever, but um, especially these days. But I really think it can be a beautiful thing. And I think what he, the way he took it and the way he instilled it in his work without being like, love Jesus. Jesus is the one you should love. So not like C.S. Lewis. Not like C.S. Lewis. Exactly, right? And um, at the same time, you know, especially if anything is a, a bit of a, to use a word I hate, problematic, it would be the the Roman Catholic Church that he was a part of. Uh, Name one thing the Roman Catholic <laughs> Church did that was bad for hundreds of years deliberately. Just to use a song from the Who's Tommy, fiddling all about, all about. Um, but, but, you know, his personal religion, I do find to be very beautiful. And I love how he instilled it into the work, like I said, um, here's some examples. First of all, here's him overtly saying it is uh, a Catholic work. The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision. That is why I have not put in or have cut out practically all references to anything like religion, to cults or practices in the imaginary world. For the religious element is absorbed into the story and the symbolism. Which I think is awesome. So there's not a bunch of churchy churchness. In other words, it's it's in it's in the values of the characters and it's in the the overall concepts that he had. Which one of my favorite one is that just that good. Everyone is uh, uh, naturally good, um, and are are turned to evil. Mm-hmm. And I think that is not a bad concept to hold with you. It, it's it's a positive outlook. It says all all beings are. In the beginning, good, but they just the evil overtakes them. Um, so uh, to, to I mean, you the Silmarillion and Paradise Lost like are very very similar. Very I'm about similar. to talk about the the creation myth in the Silmarillion, but uh, much like orcs are corrupted uh, are a corrupted race of elves. That's the thing. I didn't even remember that we were watching the movies and Lexi. They was were like, selectively bred. It's real gross. Yeah, Lexi was like, those are were elves, right? And they were turned. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. And then, um, uh, of course, all, all evil in Middle-earth comes from a corruption of fundamental goodness. The the Nazgul, the Black Riders, they used to be kings. They they were human kings tricked by Sauron. And that's how they became evil. There's an the Elrond... dwarves were born from dirt by one of the lesser Maiar, which mm-hmm. is kind of a... They're less... Dwarves are less than people, but and, whatever. And there's a, a quote from Elrond in the book who says, uh, for nothing is evil in the beginning. Even Sauron was not so. Um, and then this fucking beautiful passage. This is one of like people, most people's most beloved uh, quotes from the book. Um, and I will read it as such. I think it's very applicable here. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tower high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Which All <laughs> on your knees. <laughs> I just think it's such that's such a beautiful passage and such a beautiful concept that 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 hey you know um there is the, 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 at the end of the day no matter how shitty things can get there's a fucking light and there is good and i think that's such a beautiful concept and also just giving everybody credit you know giving everyone credit on, on, on this earth to say like not only were they at one point 
good in their heart, but they could potentially be good some other time. One of the lessons of the books that I think is kind of brilliant is, uh, again, these are like very overarching themes, is that the Sauron is more powerful, is like, is, mm. is more like he, it's, it's almost an unfeasible thing that like the, 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 the realms of men can win against this dark army. And the only thing they have to their advantage is that Gandalf and Aragorn and all these other, and Elrond, all these, all these uh, forces for good understand that the ring can corrupt. And so they trust the hobbits who are like the most uncorruptible, the most lacking in a sense of power. Mm-hmm. Whereas Sauron literally to his final moment uh, just cannot conceive of such a thing that good can recognize evil, but evil can only see itself. That's uh-huh. in theory the final undo, like uh, the final undoing of Sauron is that uh, Aragorn and you know the the Fellowship come to the gates of Mordor, and Sauron literally just like out loud is like, "Oh well, clearly Aragorn has the ring because otherwise, why would he try and fight me? Ah. The only reason why you would try and fight me is if you can win. You wouldn't try and sacrifice yourself right. needlessly." Uh, so I'm going to focus on you and not perceive uh, Frodo and Sam and Gollum in Mount Doom. Right. That it's it's down to the wire that evil is just assumes everyone is evil. And yeah. And it's like good can just like have the temperance and moderation to like kind of be wary of 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 uh, of. Of darker instincts. It just and 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 Saruman's like full conviction when Gandalf finally finds that he's like turned mm. and he's just and he's just like you can't beat this guy. So what are you gonna do? Get in line or get out? And Gandalf's no. I'm gonna do everything I can. You know, I'm gonna till the very end. Also, um, we're secretly weird angel beings, <laughs> but yes. that won't come out later. <laughs> That's the most upsetting. Like the more because. The wizard means something. Wizard means you went to wizard school and you studied your wizard books and you got like five spell slots. And no, Tolkien was like, nah, they're just angel dudes. <laughs> they're just magical fuckers. But but doesn't he have to like, he sort of has to evolve like a Pokemon. I got mm-hmm. Pokemon and JoJo's Bizarre Adventure into our Tolkien episode. I'm glad. <laughs> He sort of had to evolve. He had to like prove himself. It wasn't like he was just an angel. No, Didn't he, he have to ascend by defeating the Balrog and sort of putting no, himself Gandalf to the, the test White, so that he could level up enough to he, gain enough. That experience was a respawn. Points. He died. <laughs> uh, Balrog beat. They fought for what was it eight days straight. Yeah. And Balrog the- was just in his area, just camping the whole time. That's bullshit, man. I mean, it was. I mean, Balrog did some very effective kiting strategies to try and like tire him out, but unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, you know, Gandalf had more stamina points. <laughs> and then when he respawned at the uh, at the, the graveyard, he, you know, the uh, the XP he added gave him some new abilities. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I went to Faulty Towers. <laughs> <laughs> Tilted Towers. Oh, sorry. Faulty Tilted. Towers is, is the, the John Cleese. I'm glad that we got both in. I'm Fortnite. glad that we've got John Cleese's Faulty Towers and... Fortnite into our J.R. Tolkien Lord of the Rings episode. As Gollum did the floss dance into the lava. <laughs> he knew peace. Uh, so also you have a full on like straight up translation of the Genesis creation myth in the Cimmerillion. It begins uh, with a single creator god named Eru or the one and a mighty spirit named Melkor who rebels against Eru and goes into darkness. Sauron is an agent of Melkor actually. Yeah, he's so. not even the big bad. He's like the big bad's former like secretary. Right, right. But, but definitely a fall from grace. Very, very devil Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, you of course also have the 
positing that Aragorn clearly like resembles Christ. He returns as king as Christians hope for the return of Christ in this way. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you, and, and then, um, and then the idea of fate and destiny uh, is definitely in the book. Gandalf, uh, with the famous quote, there was something else at work beyond any design of the ringmaker. I can put it no plainer than by saying that Bilbo was meant to find the ring and not by its maker, in which case you are also m- were meant to have it. And that may be an encouraging thought. And he says that to Frodo. That this is all a, a greater work in play. This is all God's plan, essentially. Earth's uh, plan. Yes, exactly. Um, Tolkien says, It may be said that the chief purpose of life for any one of us is to increase, according to our capacity, our knowledge of God by all the means we have, and to be moved by it to praise and thanks. And I think that he tries to instill that in his work to get us to, to try to think like that and get to that point when it comes to faith and God and people and the good of mankind. It's a beautiful thing. I think his relationship with re- religion is healthy and very beautiful. And I really, it really warmed my heart thinking about it, uh, ruminating on it as I studied. Uh, I'm not, uh, I, I would consider myself agnostic, but this is the kind of religion I can get behind. And I think that's really lovely. Uh, so anyways, uh, let's talk about some some other good moments and quotes in the books and, and you know, do our thing where we just fucking... Again, get all happy about it. Uh, a mini gush. A mini gush is what we're going to do. I found some good quotes. I'm sure I didn't pull your favorite listener at home. Uh, but here are a couple. First of all, I would say mine personally. Um, and this is a memory of reading the book. This is like such such a nerdy moment in my life. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, because we were getting like really fucked up the whole time. But uh, I took a road trip with a friend of mine down to Boca Raton from Tallahassee. So like the length of Florida. It was probably like an eight-hour to ten, probably 10 hours and I read aloud to him the two towers Jesus. like all the way down and all the way back and I got like through Helm's Deep and Helm's Deep was such a beautiful part for me I, I just it all kind of came together the the beautiful passages you know when Gandalf shows up the gorgeous passages uh with, with the writers of Rohan or whatever look towards the east um uh all of the war all of just the the amazing ability to describe battle uh, and of course, based on his experiences in World War One, for sure, his ability to understand tactics and war strategy. So not only do you have these languages and these incredible, you know, m- myths uh, all wound up together and these amazing uh, characters and dialogue, but then you get to the battle itself, and dude can write a fucking action scene, you know, and 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 that is such a special ability, and I loved. Loved the Helm's Deep part personally. Was there anything? Did you read them? I can't remember. No, no, uh, that's right. You fact, never read them. I barely, ma- I barely got like I didn't make it past Tom Bombadil in a Fellowship of the Rings, and <laughs> uh, I was actually overjoyed because up. in the New York Times articles, uh, in the New York Times reviews, I think this was from. Uh, I wish I could find the quote, but in the uh, Return of the King review, they mentioned how like if you like a lot of readers uh, probably never made it past uh, Tolkien's bad quaint small town comedy in the shire to get to the good parts because lord knows those 40 pages do not like whip like the rest of the uh like the rest of the books so yeah i honestly this is all this is all greek to me besides just what i've absorbed passively and this is in the movie because it had to be but this is um the quote uh this is gandalf and frodo uh after they found the ring 
I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us, which is so beautiful. Uh, oh, God, and then this is such a good, this is also, a, I think, a great Christian message, and this is what I'm going to get on my high horse about social media. Are you ready for this? Your shadow facts? Uh, yeah, I'm shadow facts on, on Facebook, and this is what I want to say about it. Uh, Gandalf, uh, this is Gandalf after Frodo declares that the Gollum deserves death. Deserves it? I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment, for even even the very wise cannot see all ends. And of course, the Gollum, though he's a fucking nightmare and a shit show and almost you know, fucks everything up for everybody in the end. He is what leads them to Mount Doom. He, if he had been killed by Bilbo or anybody else leading up to the point where they finally got the ring to Mount Doom, it never would have been destroyed, mm-hmm. you know? And so even someone who is just so, so fucking t- tortured. But it's funny, it's interesting. I feel like I find him almost more annoying and therefore it's okay in the movies. When Lexi sees Gollum being like hurt by humans in the movies, she gets really upset, mm-hmm. you know? Because she has a big heart. Now, this is what I'm going to say about this. This is why I think this is an important quote. I'm so sick and fucking tired of people on social media trashing people who just died. And I know that everybody goes back and forth and be like, but he did this and he did that or she did this and she did that. And it's just like, who the fuck are you to judge? You know what I mean? I, I just think it's like, I judge judge not lest ye be judged in, in a lot of ways. Like, I do believe in that in my heart. I understand people have done terrible things. Um, you know, uh, uh, in their lifetime or, or, or have allegedly done terrible things in their lifetime or just everybody being really quick to hear like a rumor about somebody and immediately just stomp them down as hard as they can on social media. I think this quote perfectly exemplifies like, do, do, do stop, stop that. Stop doing that. It makes me angry. I feel like you're just putting negativity and, and, and shittiness into the world, and it makes my heart sad. Counterpoint, the people that put shittiness and dark energy into the world are the ghouls that just died. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the fact that we like somehow managed to live our lives without like leaving hundreds of Kurdish rebels to just with their dicks in the wind after the Iraq war. Yeah, yeah, I get it. And I, I, I'm not saying this necessarily about George H.W. Bush. Yeah. He's the most, he's just the most recent one. He killed JFK with his own bare hands and then put a dummy in the car <laughs> and then he pulled the shot on that dummy. I read the pamphlets. This is definitely not truth. specifically about him. He just happens to be the most recent one. This has been something weighing on me for years now because of how- And he was real mean to Homer Simpson in that episode <laughs> of The Simpsons. <laughs> I love that episode. It's Simpsons. an amazing episode. I just- feel like just and it's the same thing it's like perpetuating negative energy you know he invented too. crack cocaine yes he did and, and he like got was... some kid arrested i guess or something i don't yeah. know what he did but look i'm just saying this like you're just p- perpetuating a fucking disgusting negative cycle and i think we could be spending our efforts trying to make the world like a more positive place in spite of these fu- the, the shitty things these people have done as opposed to just getting online and immediately trashing someone and i couldn't fucking imagine i'm sure there are Plenty of people who will be happy to say some nasty shit about me the day I die, no matter how good I tried to be in this world, no no matter how much I I try to be a decent person, because that's just the facts. But let's fucking not. How about we just The day I die, I know what people are going to be saying about me. He was a loyal friend. He was a kind person. He shat himself to death outside of a Denny's. (laughs) 
All right, uh, soapbox uh, done. But anyways, that the, the, just reading that, but this is what I'm talking about. Reading something like this that was written so long ago and having it apply to like my social media issues yeah. in a deep, profound way, this is the applicability that Tolkien was speaking about. So even if I'm wrong, by the way, don't, please, let's not get into like a weird argument about it, um, fellow listener. Uh, I just love that that can apply personally, yeah. you know, to your beliefs and your passions um, and maybe actually guide you towards a better understanding. I I, I just think it's such a beautiful, beautiful uh, through line. And, and it's like Gollum, the shitty, awful fucking creature Gollum, who you do gain sympathy for as the work goes on. Um, but in the beginning, you're like, this guy just keeps fucking everything. Like, this guy's just such an annoying piece of shit wrapped up into this story. But you, he would, the whole thing wouldn't go down without him. There's just no way. Like, there's no way Frodo and Sam would have found Mount Doom without him, you know? Unless they just went, Eagle. No, the Eagle. <laughs> Like unless they were just like eagle can in you? the Silmarillion, they explicitly say that like the eagles are an extension of like one of the Viar gods, like the king of whatever, and like it's literally like in the Hobbit and in the Fellowship Deus Ex Machina, it's actual yeah. di- like an actual machine of God, an actual Deus Ex Machina, and like uh, Tolkien himself said like it, every time he had to use the eagles, it like tore him up inside because it just he just couldn't figure out a way out. And of course, when the Lady Eowyn stands up to the Witch King of Angmar, the Witch King says, Hinder me, thou fool. No living man may hinder me. Then Mary heard of all sounds in that hour the strangest. It seemed that Durnhelm laughed, and the clear voice was like the ring of steel. But no living man am I. Fucking boom! And then she fucking kills him. No, wait, it's... they They... In the books, she, like, goes, no man am I, and, like, then they fight. Um, In the movies, it's, like, the big kazinger. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, like, I, I don't, I, I was I was trying to look up differences between the books and the movies, ah. and I wish I could find the excerpt, but, like, then the witch king of Angmar is, like, ah, shit, I better be a little careful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I mean, she's still a human woman, and I'm uh, the you know, which king what destroyed witch- kingdoms of men. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, I, like, I'll be a little more careful. By the way, which king of Angmar, the most badass villain name. It's like, very- it's up there. It is so good. It's, like, up there with Darth Vader. Yeah. I love it. Um, Saruman, um, uh, Christopher Lee, right? Saruman says in the movies, the witch king of Angmar. <laughs> like, it's such a great delivery on that. So great. So, the books come out. Uh, Tolkien says, I wrote the last in about 1949. I remember I actually wept at the denouement, which I think is quite great. Which one am I right, folks? <laughs> All right, hey. please. I don't think I don't think there's quite as many endings in the actual book as there is in the uh. movies. Um, Unwin, the... No, they cut endings yeah, from, yeah, the, from the movies. Unwin uh, uh, says of uh, when Tolkien finished his work. I was in Japan when the manuscript arrived. Rainer wrote, Rainer, by the way, the nephew that uh, read The Hobbit and gave his review, which got it published. Rainer wrote to say it seemed a big risk. It would have been, uh, have to be published in three volumes at a guinea each. This at a time when 18 shillings was top for a bestseller. But Rainer added, of course, it's a work of genius. So I cabled him to take it. 
Of all the books I've brought out in 63 years, there are a few that I can say with absolute confidence will sell long after my departure. Of this one, I had no doubts. Tolkien says, though, that he never thought it would uh, be so successful. I never expected a money success, says Tolkien. In fact, I never even thought of commercial publication when I wrote The Hobbit back in the 30s. Um... And, of course, as I mentioned before, in America, actually, so that's published in, what, 1949, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe 1949. And so it doesn't become popular in America for another 15 years. Oh, did we get into this, that um, the reason why they got popular in America? We didn't talk about this. Oh, okay. This is what I was about to talk about. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You got the notes. You do it. So in 1965... what happened in America, as Tolkien refers to it, uh, was an absurd frenzy. So an unauthorized paperback was published by Ace Books, which was cheap. And all of a sudden, they were flying off the shelves. Um, on By campus- unauthorized, it was a just a quirk in the international rights management of the, uh, of the Lord of the Rings books. Because they were available, but, you know, they cost as much as a normal-ass book with an established author and publisher. And everyone has to get their cut. Um, and instead... Uh, because of a lapse in the uh, American rights, Ace Books just swept in and just because there's no recourse, like th- like right. the the British publisher fucked up, and so like basically the Lord of the Rings were as good as public domain in America, right? And so these books became cheap as fuck, like anybody could get a hold of them, and so uh, that means anybody, especially college kids, broke ass college kids who were smoking tons of weed because it's 1965, and everybody is like getting groovy, and then this groovy ass three volume epic falls into their laps, and they start going crazy for it. Now, Ballantine Books buys out an approved paperback later that year, and apparently the books were so successful that people who even had the Ace version like wanted to show their devotion and went out and bought uh, the Ballantine book version, and it, it continued to make a shitload of money. I love this uh, quote from Tolkien about reading in his old age. I don't read much now, not even fairy stories, and then I'm always looking for something I can't find. Uh, we asked what that was. He replied, something like what I wrote myself. <laughs> Could you imagine having written something so massive and just so successful and so unique as Lord of the Rings and then just be like, fuck, I want to read, but I want to be able to enjoy this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I feel the same way about the brilliant comedic animated series Cartoon Hell available on dropout.tv. <laughs> Fantastic plug. It's sometimes I just watch it and like, oh, I wish something this good was made not by me. <laughs> So, uh, the book is incredibly successful, is what I was I meant to get to. Uh, it is it, it does very, very well, leading to animated films, which hopefully we'll talk about at some point, and, and then live-action films, which we are definitely going to talk about at some point. I will say, I was, like, obsessed. I, maybe I talked about this last week, but I was obsessed about uh, with the animated Hobbit. I mean, even then, as a young child, I was very familiar with Tolkien's work, which is pretty wild. Um, so, now let's talk about Christopher Tolkien. Uh, which I, I did not realize how deep of a relationship they had uh, when it comes to his work. It wasn't like, like I said earlier, I always thought Christopher Tolkien just kind of was like, oh, I'll work for dad's company, essentially. He thought he was the Eric Trump of fantasy. Exactly. I thought he was that. And no, he was actually helping Tolkien uh, write the books in so many ways. He was born in Leeds. He was the third and youngest son of J.R. Tolkien. And he would listen to tales of Bilbo Baggins as a child and even offered feedbacks on Lord of the Rings. Uh, Christopher said, My father wrote in a letter to his publishers, Alan and Unwin, dated 4 February 1938, 
I received a letter from a young reader in Boston, uh, enclosing a list of errata, or grammatical errors. I then put my youngest son to find any more at two pence a time. So even as a young child, he was giving Tolkien grammatical notes and and, uh, uh, feedback. Um, And he even referred to Christopher as his chief critic and collaborator. So no, he was actually around from the very beginning. Uh, Christopher Tolkien went to a prep school for the for young children, aptly named the Dragon School in I Oxford. I saw that on Wikipedia, and I was just like, I don't have time to figure out what the fuck Dragon School is. <laughs> it's just a it's just a boys' school. Yeah. Like it's nothing crazy. It's just like a boys' prep. School. It's like a, a fancy boys' school. Um, he also went to then after that the oratory school and uh, and, and of course our beloved football team the Wildcats. <laughs> uh, he went uh, he went to an oratory school which is an independent Catholic day and boarding school and then entered the Royal Air Force in 1943 and was sent to of all places South Africa for flight training the place where Tolkien was born and had to leave when he was around three years old I believe. Uh, he served until after the war then studied English at Trinity College Oxford until 1949 and Tolkien during this time in the Air Force would send him letters about Lord of the Rings progress and even all of book four which is the second part of Two Towers all of it he sent to him uh, when he would when he would mail him these letters to read like as they were being written uh, when he was just 21 years old his father actually invited him to be in the Inklings and this is a good time for us to talk about that because we did not talk about the Inklings last week so I wanted to just do a brief little overview because I didn't really I, I always heard of the inklings but I never was really like super aware of exactly what they did uh, they were a literary discussion group associated with the University of Oxford they uh, would start they started in the early 1930s and they went on until uh, around 1949 around the time when uh, Lord of the Rings came out there were literary enthusiasts who praised the value of narrative in fiction and encouraged the writings of fantasy there were all these kind of lower level lower echelon Oxford fantasy guys but it was all centered around fantasy for some reason I had in my head it was a bunch of different literary types all no. discussing their work and everything I didn't realize this was, it was this like, was the fucking anime club yeah, of Oxford. this is the anime club of Oxford I love it uh, so the members included C.S. Lewis, uh, Henry Victor Dyson, who with Tolkien would convince C.S. Lewis to convert to Christianity, and many, many others. They were all male, um, as were most clubs at the time, but they were not a formal club or literary society. They had no rules or officers or agendas or formal elections. Uh, and most, for the most part, they would just get together and hold readings and discussions of unfinished works, including Lord of the Rings. Where the main purpose of the meeting was also just to like you know give feedback. Essentially, they were just kind of there. They were like an impromptu writing class that didn't have grades. From at the end. what I could gather, it was actually like pretty lively. Like C.S. Lewis was like falling over himself, like praising Tolkien over the Lord of the Rings, while Dyson would be like literally laying in a booth, just like going like, "Ugh, again with the elves, Jesus, <laughs> man." Um, uh, and there would be there would be copious amounts of drinking. Yes, they would they would hang out at except a- during the war when they would just sit in a bar. And there would be beer shortages, and they just like yell about fairies. Yeah, exactly. They they did. They would get pretty hammered um, uh, as well. Uh, also, another one of their activities they like to do is read the notoriously bad prose of Amanda McKittrick Ross in a competition to see who could get through the most of it without laughing. That's I- amazing because uh, in my own memories of like going to sci-fi conventions and anime conventions, uh, there's like people would walk around with these like weird old pulp books and do the same like yeah. literally walk basically I was in a I was in a con at uh in North Carolina and literally a stranger came up to me and my friends and was like here's $5 if you can read like these two pages without laughing 
like you get to keep it and none of us could do like it's just it's like this weird beloved pastime of just yeah. reading really bad genre fiction it's really i had to look her up um she's sort of like a, a character who's sort of known as when a small time person tries to like emulate good writing and is just devastatingly horrible at it, but somehow was able to get her work published. So it's like the sentences are like incomprehensibly terribly, like there's just way too many adjectives. There's way too much, like it's just simple things are uh, like uh, a simple line about how someone like did needlework as their day job was this like giant, crazy three-part sentence that was like way too elaborate and over the top and and crazy. So, anyways, if you are ever interested, check out uh, Amanda McKittrick Ross as a, a pretty fun, entertaining little uh, segue. Uh, but now uh, back to Christopher Tolkien. Oh, and- the 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 tavern, the bar, the inn uh, is still up. You yeah. can visit it to this day. In is it? I know Lamb and Flag was one of them, but I think there was a different one. The that Bird was the and the Babe. The, the Eagle babe. and the ch- Whatever it's yeah, yeah. called. Yeah. The Bird and the Baby or something like that is its nickname. But yeah, it still exists and you can go there. Uh, and um, so back to Christopher. Uh, he ends up uh, publishing uh, the saga of King Hydric the Wise, uh, which is a legendary saga from the 13th century com- uh, con- combining several older sagas, including wars between Goths and Huns in the fourth century and into Swedish medieval history. This was a translation. So in other words, uh, completely following in his father's uh, footsteps, translating old works and getting them published. And like his father, he became a lecturer and tutor in English language at New College, Oxford. So he's completely just emulating daddy big time and so of course when his father dies in 1973 Tolkien has uh, had an almost finished Cimmerillion that he intended to publish Christopher organizes this material some of it's written on scraps of paper dozens of years ago some of it's written over half erased first drafts with names of characters changing from the beginning of the work to the end which must have been a, a absolute nightmare like he pours through all of his father's stuff Christopher says, I think the fundamental problem for my father and for me was this. Up to the last year of his life, he was still evolving his ideas in the central work of his life as I hold to it, hold it to be, that came to be called the Cimmerillion, which had begun in tales and poems of his youth. It is now, it was now a changed world, which is what I talked about early on in this episode. And people were begging for this because mm-hmm. like uh, word had already got, like when the Lord of the Rings came out, you know, uh, there, it was common knowledge that he had, uh, that Tolkien had been sitting on these hundreds and thousands of pages of notes. Like, people were desperate for more of this world. And so, finally, the Cimmerillion does get produced uh, as late as 1977, which is pretty wild. And he continued to publish more and more of his works. He produces the Unfinished Tales and the History of Middle-Earth in the 80s and 90s. Unfinished Tales is a collection of incomplete stories and essays, many of which are retold in the Cimmerillion. So it's more kind of academic. And even more academic than that is what I is the history of Middle Earth, which I talked about before. This is a twelve volume series of books that collect and analyze the material and show how Middle Earth was formed and developed from a mythology of England as it once was in the Lost Tales into the one that we get with Lord of the Rings and the Cimmerillion, which gives a deep look at Tolkien's creative process. So it's not really the history of Middle-earth, like this is the history of the world Middle-earth. It's more like the history of the creation of Middle-earth from Tolkien's perspective and an analyzation of, uh, or uh, I don't think analyzation is a word, an analysis. I was in a writing class, I was teaching a writing class, sketch comedy, and uh, I said the word analyzation when I was talking about like probably people writing on impulse. And this guy was like, that's not a word. Oh. This fucking guy. 
I was like, oh, I'm sorry. It totally threw me off of what I was talking about, which is like how to approach writing. <laughs> Holden, but, you got to stop being getting all these minor slights. And you know what? <laughs> they that, build up. That guy didn't show up on hey. week two because he probably walked away going like, Take a writing class. This guy doesn't even know analyzation isn't a word. And then he fucking pulled his dick off and he threw it at an old lady. He was like, look, look, I'm cool. I hate that guy. I'm going to find you, fucker. And if you listen to this podcast and you remember this moment, come talk to me. All right? I live in Queens, Brant. Okay? I'm calling him out. That's no way to talk about Rob Schneider. I don't know. <laughs> We're both like flagging at this point. I feel like, all right, let's bring this puppy home, Jake. Come on, let's get it. Let's get it home here. Let's get back to the Shire. Yeah, let's get. Let's get. Let's bring. Let's bring our drag ourselves. Christopher Tolkien, by the way, still kicking. Ninety-four years old. Yeah, he's alive. Oh, that, Christopher Tolkien is. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, like, he's alive. Yeah, his youngest son, a ninety-four-year-old man. Crazy. <laughs> um. So. He also put out, finally, three of his father's unfinished novels, The Children of Huron, Baron and Luthien, and The Fall of Gondolin, um, as th the three great tales, and has since retired as director of Tolkien's estate. Another weird little side fact, he had a dispute and disowned his own son because his son supported, like, the films, I believe. <laughs> and then he they've since reconciled, but uh, that's how passionately he and his father felt about those those books never being filmed. No son of mine will res will honor the presence of Vigo Mortensen in me home. <laughs> but I uh, tell you what. But I will say uh, how those movies did get to be filmed and all of that I story. I kicked Jerry in the fucking nuts back in the war. <laughs> And this is how you repay me. I just don't agree with this character. I think I don't think it's believable. Orlando Bloom is a blight on this earth. I know I'm supposed to yes and you, but I'm just breaking all improv rules right now. Um, More like Peter Jackoff, <laughs> am I right? Oh, yes, you are right. <laughs> uh, so anyways, uh, yeah, I think that concludes, Jake, our, our whole... Our literary journey. Whew, this was a lot, man. This was a big one. And I hope we did it justice, everybody. It was very intimidating to do this episode I, and last week and everything uh i love this work i think it's so so important and i hope that uh i've convinced just a few people to sit down and actually read it uh because i do think it is one of the most important works of literature really there is especially for big old stinky nerds like us i just want to say holden that i i've had a rough two weeks and you've really uh batted it out of the park and really stood Thank up you. and I, I genuinely appreciate Thank that you. I get to do a podcast with you. Now next week you do all the heavy lifting. Alright! <laughs> I'm just kidding. Thank you everybody for joining us. If you'd like to patronize us, uh, you can support us further that way financially. Honestly guys, you're you're allowing us to be able to do the work that we do on the show. To be able to pour through all this research and everything and not have to like focus on other things like our family or our friends. So in order to do that, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Also you can follow me on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash Holdenator. So I've had a lot of people actually come in lately saying they're from Wizard of the Bruiser and just say such amazing things. So if you have never been to my Twitch stream and you want to just be one of those awesome people that pops in and just just throws me like a great compliment about Wizard of the Bruiser, hey, feel free. Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenator's Ho. And of course, uh, if you want to 
leave a review on iTunes. It's very easy. You're probably holding the app in your hands right now. It helps us out immensely, helps with visibility, helps us on the charts. And uh, when I'm feeling down, sometimes I just scroll through them and realize that I haven't wasted my life completely. Whatever, it's fine. <laughs> Follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young and uh, check out Cartoon Hell on College Humor's Dropout.tv. It's a hilarious animated cartooning journey that uh, if you like this show, I feel like you will enjoy my, uh, my, my various yellings. And motherfuckers, always remember, keep on whizzing and never stop bruising. Boyaka shot! <laughs> <laughs>